Hello and welcome to the A-Form show. My name is Alan George and thank you very much for tuning in. Each week we sit across from thought leaders and change makers in the architecture and design space of the GCC. We dive deep into their experiences both professionally and personally and share their valuable insight as to what makes them tick. Our goal is to add value to your day and help you navigate your own personal creative journey. Finally, the opinions and the views of the guest speakers are that of their own. They do not necessarily represent the views and the opinions of the show or the host. Welcome to the show, everyone. This week, we have a special guest, someone who I'm sure a lot of the listeners would want to hear from, or rather the industry that he is from, especially given the current times that we are in. I am talking about nobody else rather than Steve Glitz. Steve has been a part of the design ecosystem within the GCC for some time now. Being from the recruitment space, he has a constant pulse on how the industry operates and moves. Steve has been living and working in Dubai since 2015, specializing in recruiting design professionals for the international architectural consultancies, real estate developers, and government authorities within the architecture and design sector whilst working for Redpath Partners. They are an international recruitment business that focuses solely on providing services to the property and construction industries who interact with clients at all stages of the property life cycle from capital to funding to design and delivery across a global network of offices, including Sydney, Melbourne, New York, Hong Kong and London. Steve has developed an extensive network of clients and candidates across the Middle East, partnering with some of the world's most famous, prestigious architectural design firms who boast some of the region's most iconic projects. Since joining Redpath Partners, Steve has been given the opportunity to work on some of the region's large-scale master planning projects and is currently focused on supporting the development of Saudi Arabia in line with Vision 2030. Building out design teams on a number of exciting projects across the kingdom, we are really excited to have Steve with us today. So without further ado, let's get into it. All right. Good morning. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thank you, Alan. It's good to be here. Uh, You've had some very high profile leading industry speakers on the show, so I'm delighted to be here. Awesome. So I'm pretty sure everyone listening in, the minute they hear the word recruiter, there's mixed reactions to say the least. We're going to dive into all those reasons and why they exist and so on. But I'm going to start off with obviously the big elephant in the room, which is most candidates tend to not like recruiters for multiple reasons. Recruiters in general, one would say get a pretty bad rap, especially mm-hmm. in our field over here. So I would like us to start there. Let's mm-hmm. start with the down and dirty <laughs> and then make our way up. But if you could then maybe also touch upon what the sort of life cycle of recruitment is for a candidate. How mm-hmm. does it start? What's the middle? How does it end? What's the ideal way of it working around? Sure. That's a very tough question to start with, but I, I agree. It's a big industry. Any service sector, you get across a section of experiences. And I would say you get what you'll pay for if you're probably looking from a client perspective. If you're looking from a candidate perspective, I think it's educating candidates on what a recruiter's role is. You've defined it as recruiter. I think one thing that we do at Redpath Partners is we see ourselves as recruitment consultants. Right. And there's an emphasis here on consultant, whereas a lot of other recruiters, especially in this region, are very transactional in the market. And when I say transactional, it's just a one-off interaction. So they might approach you about a role, they'll get your CV, and you'll never ever hear from them again. 
And I can understand that can be very frustrating if you're you know, looking for a job. You know, as a recruitment consultant, you know, you should be consulting throughout the whole recruitment process. I think it's about forging genuine partnerships. That's something that is one of our key values at Redpath Partners, whether that be with candidates, with clients, it's very much about earning trust. This can take many years to gain, especially with clients. And we work with very demanding clients who have extremely high expectations. And again, that, you know, ultimately we do not make the decisions, you know, for the candidate, the client does. And I think it's portraying that to the candidates. Sometimes they think the recruitment consultant who they're dealing with is the key decision maker. That's not the case. You know, we have to do what, you know, the client tells us to do and what their feedback is. And I think probably the biggest issue in this region is when the consultant's given the feedback, if it's negative, you know, they don't give that feedback to the candidate. And if they do, they might do it over an email rather than doing face-to-face. And sometimes, you know, we don't get feedback from a client. We can submit a shortlist. We can, you know, highlight your key skill sets and experience of why you've been shortlisted for that role. But a client will literally just come back and they might pick one of the candidates and not the other two. And they won't tell us why they haven't picked the other two. So we have to be, you know, careful with what we can say back to the candidates. But yeah, a lot of the time recruiters can can go missing. And I think that leaves a bad taste in candidates' mouth, especially as well when we're dealing with CVs and portfolios, which are very confidential to candidates that they spend a lot of time on. And they want to be, you know, they want to make sure that they've got the trust of the recruiter where that CV and where that portfolio is going. And when they put time in that, they want to make sure that they're kind of getting the the right feedback. Right. So it can be, uh, yeah, it can definitely be be difficult for for candidates. Like I said, ultimately recruiters work for the client and we are governed by the client's feedback or the client's decision. But I think it's really important to have very strong communication and keeping the candidates up to date and just building that trust okay. and keeping them through uh, throughout the process. That would be you know, what I think initially comes to mind is probably why recruiters get a bad rap. I think also, you know, we, we also advise sort of clients on market trends, you know, and we're not just filling jobs. I think a lot of candidates just believe we've got a job. All we do is just submit CVs to clients. So yeah, ultimately, yes, that is the goal. We're working for the client. You know, we create shortlists. We, we will submit them and we try and take them through the process and close out that role. But, you know, for me, I will work with clients where I'll do their salary surveys, for example. So it's not just solely focused on sitting on LinkedIn and headhunting individuals and looking at CVs. There's there's a lot goes into to being a recruitment consultant and putting shortlists together can be very, very time consuming because you are trying to hit the client brief. And like I said, they can be very challenging and they know what they want and they will not budge on their the brief right. and their expectations. So we have to make sure that we're ultimately finding the candidates that have got the skill set, the project experience required, especially on these large scale projects that we're currently recruiting on in Saudi Arabia at the moment. So I think it's it's sometimes just the volume of applicants that you get in this part of the world. It, it's just impossible to get back to everyone as much as we try to. You know, I have probably hundreds of emails come in. I get numerous messages on LinkedIn. And I generally don't post jobs for the reason is I will have hundreds and hundreds of applicants. And to be honest, probably 90% of them won't actually hit the brief that I've put on. And if I go through calling everybody saying, this is why you don't hit the brief, they do understand that. Initially, they don't. But when I go through it, they then understand and say, yeah, I completely understand why you're not putting me on your shortlist. But 
I just don't have the time possible because I would never work on the roles for the client. And then I'd have the client on my back saying, where are my candidates? Where are my right. shortlist? So I think, you know, it's important to remember that not all recruiters are the same. And that goes for architects as well. You know, <laughs> there's different architects in the market. So, uh, you know, it's, you, you can't compare certain architects and certain architectural firms. And that goes for the same as recruitment firms out here in our line of work, which is the, is the construction sector, but within architecture and design, it really comes down to sort of your training, but I really think it's down to the individual and communication and building trust. Right. Okay. So I then maybe want to maybe scale back a little bit to the client end of things. Mm -hmm. So if this is, you know, clearly a pain point, not just for candidates, but also for consultants like yourself, mm -hmm. is this ever bought up to a client saying that, listen, Mr. Client, because us as architects, we do the same thing probably. Obviously, it's one thing to manage expectations of a client, but it's another thing to, as a consultant, consult with them and tell them that this is in your interest long run. So from a recruiter point of view, do you also do similar kind of conversations with clients? Yeah. You know, we'll get a brief and we'll be very transparent with them. You know, we'll say we will do our best to hit your brief. They might have 10 points on there and they will want all 10 points ticked. Right. But they've got to realize that it's not always possible, especially if you're looking for a certain skill set or project experience. And if we take, for example, Saudi Arabia at the moment, and probably if you go back 10 years in Dubai when it was going through, you know, it's, it's huge sort of development as a city. Uh, in Saudi at the moment, there, there's, there's massive projects and they are looking for certain skill sets and they have to realize that majority of the time they want Middle East project experience and that market now it's, you know, it's becoming exhausted because, you know, these projects have been recruiting for two, three, four years. And a lot of the, the, the skill set and experience they're looking for are already there. So then you have to start saying, we will try and find your desired uh, candidate with this. But also what we will do is we will give you other options. And it's my job as a consultant right. to give the client options. I will say, I think this candidate a is good because it has, you know, this experience and ticks this experience and has X, Y experience. But I also think this candidate is a very good option. It might not tick this box, but it can also has this box and this box. So they can definitely be flexible. But I do think when you're dealing with certain projects and who they're reporting into, if it's a government authority, sometimes there is no flexibility and it can be looking for a needle in a haystack at times because that right. candidate might not be in the Middle East. They might be located somewhere else globally. And then you're trying to sell the Middle East or you're trying to sell Saudi Arabia to them and they don't know anything about it, which is why it's much easier to find candidates that are in the Middle East. They understand the culture and they understand how projects are delivered here. So yeah, we do definitely will push back with clients, but ultimately clients are the ones that are, you know, funding these projects. They know what they want. They know the skill sets in order to deliver these projects. So they need someone that has been there, seen it and done it and actually has taken projects from cradle to grave. So A to Z from design all the way through to development into, you know, construction and delivery and seeing that asset operational. Right. Um, so yeah, there, there's, there, there are degrees of flexibility, but again, you go back to what I mentioned earlier, the client is the decision maker. So okay. we are fundamentally driven by their expectations, but we can give them options, but there's no saying they're going to go with what we propose. But, you know, I think sometimes giving them a different opinion, they might see it differently. And we do see candidates that are, become much more flexible. And I think we're seeing it more now in the market, what with COVID 
there's there's um, you know a lot a lot of flexibility with expectations. Okay. Um, given, I mean, obviously now because of COVID, I mean, there would definitely be a change as compared to what, say, the market was last year as compared mm-hmm. to this year, for sure. But I maybe want to go a while back because you've been in the industry for quite a bit, mm-hmm. definitely. Do you see your briefs changing as compared to, say, what they were maybe five years back as compared to now? This is, of course, you know, without considering COVID. Yeah, I think I think at the the moment it's sort of yes and no question. I think in terms of the briefs, from our experience, probably in the last couple of years, uh, we're now working on a lot of the Vision Twenty Thirty projects in Saudi Arabia. These are huge, large scale projects which have pretty much been unseen globally, probably apart from China. Even though people talk about the development of Dubai, you know, Dubai just developed a city. Um, and even though we've got some, you know, large scale master plans, you know, they're not giga projects which right. are going on in the kingdom. And for these to be delivered, they're looking for certain asset experience where candidates have delivered these multiple assets. So for example, if we're working on a mixed use master plan and it's got a component of hospitality, very high end retail, upscale F&B, it could have some, uh, you know, cultural districts on there. You need to find those individuals that have delivered maybe cultural projects from A to Z. They understand how, you know, the design works with the content. If you're looking for hospitality experts, they're looking for someone that's maybe worked client side. They're looking for someone that's maybe worked for an operator that understands the brand standards. So they're looking more nowadays, I think, for asset classes of projects which have been delivered and numerous ones, not just an architect that's maybe worked on, okay, I've done a four-star hotel in Dubai, but I was only involved in the design development. I'd done the concept. I took it up to DD. It went to tender and then it got put on hold. That's not having the skill set of someone that's worked on a hospitality project. Right. They need to see someone that has actually got a, a tangible asset delivered from A to Z. And at the moment, even having one project is probably not enough experience. So I think the briefs at the moment are we're looking for individuals that have delivered projects from A to Z and they won't really budge on that, but it's probably down to the magnitude of the projects. Um, whereas before, I think there was a lot more smaller projects taking place and you could get away with someone that's maybe just done one project, doesn't have to maybe complete it all the way through. Um, but I think it's sort of different times. And even now in the Dubai market, you've got international consultants and architecture firms. I think they're all trying to bid on work in Saudi, but they'll deliver it from Dubai. So the spec doesn't change, even if they're working on projects from Dubai, it's still sort of the projects in, in the kingdom. So yeah, I think going back five years ago, there was a lot more probably construction going on in Dubai. Um, and there's a lot more roles. So they, there was a lot more flexibility. I just think with the development of the kingdom at the moment, and that's our experience that I can only give you my answer where we're at night right now is there, there's, there's not a lot of flexibility on, on the brief and you have to hit that, that. Okay. All right. And so now because of COVID, mm. is there flexibility now? I think there's flexibility in terms of how the employer hires. Right. Um, in terms of the how, process. How, how so would you say? So obviously it's pretty much impossible to meet face-to-face at the moment. Cool. So uh, if you go back a couple of years, 
people wasn't interested in doing video calls, Zoom calls. I don't yeah. think anyone knew what Zoom or MS Team was. You know, we'd have candidates maybe interested in coming from the UK and when we would maybe try and sell them into a client because they got some good experience and they might fit that practice. They were, you know, they'll come back and say, well, are they going to be in Dubai? Because I just want to do a face-to-face. I don't want to do a Zoom call. Um, so we'd say it's candidates. If you're really looking for a job in Dubai, you really need to be on the ground because, you know, there's a lot of competition here and those individuals have got that experience already. I think now they are much more open to doing things, everything, you know, everything online. I think the world's changing, just not in terms of recruitment. I just think how business is being done. You don't need to physically be in the office anymore. I think there's the trust element, which everybody has now seen that I think a lot of people think you've got to be at your desk from nine to five. And if you're not, you're not working. Right. But I think the world's, you know, carried on over the last 12 months. And uh, so I think, you know, we're seeing that the, uh, from the client's perspective, they're much more open to sort of video calls, um, which is great for us because a lot of our projects now, um, we are trying to find uh, designers that aren't based in the region, right. have never worked in the region. Right. Um, so it's important for us that we spend that time you know, getting to know them uh, over a video call, um, and, and as well, it's very it's very time consuming, and it's something that I can, I guess, I can talk about sort of the life cycle of a candidate. But um, you know, it's, it's definitely changed over the last year. Whereas before, you know, a lot of our candidates were based in the Middle East, and a lot were based in Dubai, especially architects, because Dubai is the hub uh, of design. Um, most people have their HQs here, so it's very easy for me if a client gives me a brief what they expect me to do um, from that life cycle of that role and for the candidate is definitely meet the candidate in person. Right. So, you know, we'll grab a coffee, we'll go through their CV and you'll spend 45 minutes to an hour with them, uh, making sure that what their experience is on their CV matches the brief that you've got. And you're trying to pick out the key stuff to summarize that candidate before you make an introduction to a client. I think, uh, I think at the, the moment, you know, there's still a lot of people that don't want to meet face to face, uh, with COVID and completely understand that. So what we're doing now is, Instead of just doing a, you know, an initial screen of a call, which might take 10, 15 minutes, you know, I'm now doing pretty much back-to-back Zoom or MS team calls every day. And I've probably got four booked in on a daily basis, but that four calls can run from anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half. So that pretty much is my day. And yeah. that'll be one call. Yeah, that's a big commitment. Isn't it's it? a very big commitment. And we're all on different time scales as well, right. you know, time zones. So, you know, I might be dealing with someone that's based in Los Angeles, New York, Sydney, and you're trying to get everything aligned. So, you know, when you're trying to put shortlists together, uh, it can be very challenging um, with the time that I actually have uh, in a day because four or five calls on Zoom, that's my day done. Right. And then I have to write up my notes. And that can be a, you know, a long process because ultimately what, the notes that I'm writing up is what I'm going to give to the client. Right. So, um, so yeah, I think there's there's definitely becoming more flexibility with the client in terms of COVID, but they're not changing the still the skill sets that they're looking for. They may be changing expectations of dates when they're going to be either in the Middle East. Uh, they are maybe offering advisory contracts if they've maybe finished up work wherever they're based. They might say, right, we can start you remotely, um, and when the borders open up. You know, we'll process your visa in the background. And then, you know, once that's ready, we expect you to fly, whether it be into the UAE or into the kingdom. Um, so there's definitely flexibility on remote working. But in terms of the skill set, there doesn't seem to be any flexibility through COVID. Okay. Because ultimately, if they start changing the brief, uh, they've still got a project to deliver. They still need to 
to get the best of the best in order right. to deliver that. So, you know, COVID is a temporary thing that's going to go away. You know, it looks like we're kind of a, you know, we're seeing light at the end of the tunnel and it, we are starting to see, uh, you know, economy starting to go back and countries starting to go back um, to normal. I think that's one really good thing about the Middle East is how they've done it compared to other countries. And, you know, we've been very fortunate in the last 12 months that we've probably been the busiest we've ever been, which doesn't actually make any sense if you think about it from recruitment. Right. And when you think of maybe people in Europe and you're hearing about the UK and, and how, you know, just so many people have been made redundant and lost their jobs and projects have gone on hold. Yes, we've seen a number of projects gone on hold here, but I think the difference between probably COVID and GFC, um, you know, back in sort of 2007, 2008, there's still money in the market. You know, this is a virus which will go away. I think previously the economy, you know, tanked obviously because of, of the banks and, 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 and the money. Um, whereas this not so much the case. And obviously the oil price as well, that, that was affected. And, and that's a big part of the Middle East. But at the moment, uh, you know, I think, you know, there's confidence in the market. And, you know, COVID will, will certainly go away. Uh, and, but, you know, the Middle East has done very well with the rollout of the vaccine. So there's confidence coming back in the market. Um, so we've remained very busy. These projects haven't stopped. And it's probably because we're dealing with the client. We're not dealing so much with the international consultants. That will probably come after the summer, after Ramadan, after Eid, or I'd say will come during the summer, because a lot of the international consultants, whether they be architecture firms or engineering firms, they're all bidding for work on a lot of the big projects that are going on in the kingdom. But a lot of them will still deliver those projects out of Dubai. Okay. So we're starting to see some sort of green shoots coming out from the UAE where we're getting more RFPs coming through requesting for our manpower services. But a lot of it is very focused on Saudi, but these are very early design stages. So, um, you know, we, they're trying to develop their master plan. So they're in very early concept stages. So, um, it's essentially COVID hasn't really affected that at the moment. Okay. Well, I mean, as a, as a designer, that's quite motivating, I must say, <laughs> especially in this, uh, I mean, I'm not going to lie. There was a bit of doom and gloom mm. a couple of months back, maybe six, seven months back, perhaps. But I think everyone who's in the industry here would definitely agree with everything that you're saying. We all know the realities of this industry as much as we love it. And most, most designers tend to be quite passionate about what they do. So it's just how it is. But it's quite, it's quite encouraging that that's what the kind of outlook maybe over the next six to eight months looks like. I kind of want to dial back again a bit to the candidate side of mm -hmm. things. So... Now that this whole new normal of Zoom calls and, you know, MS Teams is happening, I don't know about, I mean, maybe this makes me sound really old. I don't know, but uh, I still prefer the face-to-face, -face, having a coffee, that kind of thing. But I can see why that's obviously a problem or there's resistance to it. Clearly, no, no issue. But I find that I can make my best impression in a scenario of that nature. So my question to you, is for candidates listening in, how do they sort of make that impression over a Zoom call? Is it even possible? It's a good question. You know, I think everyone's very different. I mean, from, from my side, I prefer meeting my candidates. Uh, I think from both sides, because I think that's where you start to earn the trust, right. especially a candidate that is dealing with me will want to walk away from that meeting 
feeling like, you know, I trust Steve. I, you know, he's got some good market intel. He seems to know what he's talking about when it comes to the projects. He understands the processes. Um, so I feel like my CV, my portfolio is, is in safe hands. Um, and I think you only really get that by meeting face to face. I do find on Zoom calls, it can be challenging because you're just not, you, you're not reading maybe facial expressions and, um, you know, it's just so much easier when you're, when you're face to face. Uh, but you know, the situation dictates, you know, that's not where we are right now. Um, and it probably, you know, if I go back to us recruiting in Saudi Arabia, when we're doing global searches, we just can't meet people face to face. So it is going to be the new norm that we do this um, because we're trying to attract new talent into the region. You've got to remember as well, we've lost a lot of talent to COVID. You know, the market has always, it's been, I'd say the market's been pretty stagnant in the UAE for a number of years now. Yeah, um, I think I think the best way to to uh, describe it was one of my colleagues was telling me it's 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 kind of like COVID came and shook up the tree that is the market mm. and a lot of apples fell out. Mm. <laughs> and it's, it's a good um, analogy. And as such, while that is obviously not ideal and bad, but like you said, because of this big shakeup, there's now a lot of vacancy. Yeah. Yeah. In a lot of places, which otherwise would not have had them. Well, this is the thing. And this is the positive that we've taken from it. Yes, we've lost some really good talent. You know, I think with COVID, people have realized that money isn't everything. It's not the be all and end all. And I think a lot of people that are based in the Middle East that maybe come from Europe or, you know, over in uh, America or, you know, Australia, wherever they may be, is, is actually probably being around family and friends is important um, because being stuck in a country where you're not allowed to fly and you just don't know when you can get home. I think being told that and having that over your head, just people don't like that. You know, we don't like being trapped. So I think a lot of people realize actually we've maybe been here five, 10 years. It's maybe time for us to go home. You know, it's, it's not always about the money. You know, there's, there's a lot of external factors. So look, uh, you know, a lot of projects went on hold. So we have seen a lot of people, um, you know, go home, but what then happens is COVID is temporary. It's right. not going to be here for the next two, three, four, five years. You know, we're getting the vaccines rolling out. Confidence is coming back in the market. Not projects haven't been cancelled. Projects have just been put on hold. They're going to come back. The problem we're going to have is because, you know, many consultants have had to make redundancies just because in order to survive as a business, they have to cut costs. And a lot of them haven't wanted to let people go. But obviously with whether it be the developers, the clients, they've said, right, this project is going to go on hold for the foreseeable future. They just can't carry that overhead. Know, that overhead. So they've let people go. And some people have tried to stay here, but Dubai is a very expensive place without an income. And you then start, you know, eating into the savings. And then you're like, well, why am I staying here? I've been here all these years to create this nest egg. And if I'm, I'm just now using burning that, just through it, burning yeah. through it to try and stay here to find something else. I think people realize, let's go home. But we're now seeing is, Projects are coming back. And the issue we're going to have is we're going to have a, you know, a talent pool, which there's, it's very small. You know, we, we're not going to have a big enough talent pool to choose from. And, um, and it's trying to entice new people to the region. And that's, that's part of my job is educating people in, on the Middle East if they've never been out here or if they've never even reached out to me. Sometimes it's easier when someone approaches me on LinkedIn with an interest of moving to Dubai and it's always, I want to move to Dubai. It's never, I want to move to Saudi Arabia. But I'm like, <laughs> well, Dubai still quiet, but will you go to Saudi Arabia? And then when you start yeah, to talk Dubai to them, is Dubai sort of the transition area. <laughs> yeah. And and I think, you know, it's, it's definitely changing now the outset that we are selling 
Saudi Arabia, you know, Saudi Arabia is leading the GCC now. So that's where, you know, that's our focus, but it's trying to attract new talent. So we're going to, there's definitely going to be candidate shortages. And again, when I, I keep talking about Saudi Arabia, I'm talking about these master planning projects. So we need architects that have got, you know, large scale master planning experience that have de developed, you know, these projects from A to Z. Um, but a lot of these projects actually exist in the Middle East anyway. If you go to uh, other parts of the world, architects haven't been exposed to working on big master plans uh, and they haven't delivered them all the way through. So that's why we try and find the Middle East initially uh, for candidates. Um, but yeah, further afield. But yeah, there's definitely going to be a lack of talent, um, which is why we're doing probably more and more global searches right. than we've ever done. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I then maybe want to talk about a little bit about numbers, if you can. I'm not sure if if maybe you can or you can't. But obviously, given you know the success of Red Path and you know the experience that you've had here in in the Middle East specifically, what are the kind of trends or numbers that you can share with us, or rather for you know candidates? clients, well, whoever it may be, which would maybe give them a better understanding of how they need to change their expectations or maybe adjust to them. In expectations of finding a job or? Um, finding a job, what's what's required by clients yep. and, and, and clients looking yep. at what the talent pool is and how maybe they need to... Well, you know, look at it differently. If we look at it from Red Path Partners, and let's just go back the last couple of years, you know, the placements that we've done, the permanent placements over the probably past two years in our Dubai office, and then this is just for the Middle East alone, 90% of our permanent placements have been Saudi Arabia. So it shows you wow. how hot the market is. And, you know, it's currently leading the GCC, and it's probably leading you know, the construction sector globally. It's probably the last untapped market in terms of construction and development, which has been, that, that hasn't had much done to it. You know, Saudi's kind of been in a bit of an oppressive society probably for the past 40 years. So it has been untouched when you compare Dubai. You know, Dubai built a city over the best part of 20, 25 years. And we're getting to the stage now where it's a normalized market. They can't just keep building with the ethos of we'll build and people will come. Uh, and plus, you know, they, I, I think, you know, with COVID, with the oil price, you know, finances aren't what they used to be. So they have to see a return on investment and on any project that they're doing. And now I think you need to develop the city um, rather than just these high rise and, and, and retail and shopping malls. You actually now have to connect the city. So it's that urban, it's the urban space, it's the regeneration space, it's sustainability. That's probably what's Dubai needs to focus on next. Um, whereas Saudi Arabia, it doesn't have that. But what's good about Saudi Arabia is, you know, it's pretty much untouched as a kingdom. And that's what a lot of these projects are doing. It's a rollout across the country. It's not just focusing on Riyadh. It's focusing up on the Red Sea. There's, you know, lots of cultural projects going on. It's, it's not just the same. We're just going to develop hotels. We're just going to de develop retail. It's been done before. So I think if we're looking at sort of market data insights, it's Saudi Arabia. If I can talk to a candidate now that's looking for a job, I think you need to be open to Saudi Arabia. Um, and I think, you know, Saudi Arabia is changing. It's changing over the last two, three years. It's becoming, you know, much more westernized, I think is what I would probably say. I think it has been, like I mentioned, quite oppressive. And I think people have a, uh, understanding of Saudi Arabia through the media. Um, but I think 
if you've actually been to Saudi, Saudi Arabia and seen what they're trying to do now, it's definitely changing. Um, I think, you know, they've got a huge population of 35 million Saudi nationals. What they're trying to do is very, very different to the UAE where, you know, Emiratis thinks like 900,000 or a million people. It's like 10% of the population is very, very different. So, you know, Saudi now wants change uh, and that is probably, you know, the biggest insight that I could say when I'm recruiting is Saudi Arabia. If you're open to Saudi Arabia, that's where a lot of the roles are based. Um, and it's, you know, huge projects. And I think as an architect, it's exciting. You get to work on these large scale master plans that you would never get to experience to have that on your CV, put that into your portfolio. It's a once in a lifetime opportunity. Right. So I think you need to be open to Saudi. If you're not, then you're limiting, you know, what opportunities you've got available. Yes, I think a lot of people still see Dubai as home in the UAE and they want to be based out of Dubai. And and I understand that, but I, I think you have to have a degree of flexibility. So Saudi Arabia, I'd say is, is the hottest market in town. I think, again, I alluded to it earlier on, it's, it's the asset class, which is desirable from the clients. So you've got to have an experience of delivering hotels and, and not just one hotel, multiple hotels from A to Z. And that goes for retail. You've, you've, you've got to understand what it, what it is to, to develop maybe shopping malls. Um, and, you know, I think we're looking more for probably client side experience. I think that's the, the big challenge at the moment um, of where the market is when we're talking architecture and design and these construction projects is a lot of architects, interior designers that I deal with, you love design and I get it and you want to continue doing that. But as you get older throughout your career, you kind of move away from design. Um, and I think it's trying to educate candidates that when you're moving into these roles, client side, you're actually putting down the pencil. You're not sketching anymore. You're not designing. You have to wear many, many hats. And I think going client side, it's just having a mindset switched and saying, right, I'm the client. I'm managing the project. I'm more design managing. I'm project managing. So I might appoint a signature architect that's going to do, you know, the design development. You create the brief. You're creating the RFPs. You're not designing. You're saying, this is the brief. I need you to design to this brief, but you're managing them. It could be the signature architects. It could be a, you know, a local practice here, but it's, it's the change in the mindset. So I think client side experience is, uh, is an, is what we're looking for in candidates at the moment for Saudi. Not so much if I'm talking about international practices from architectural firms, because we need individuals that can still design or still understand design, but can run multiple projects. So if I'm bringing it to an architectural firm, what I'm seeing is I'm getting more requests coming through for that architect to be a all singing and dancing architect. They've got to have experience of concepts. They've got to understand the design development. They've got to have taken projects to tender. They've got to understand like the, the, the you know uh, design documentation. They've got to understand what it's like going to site and delivering projects, the full life cycle of a project. And that's what I'm getting. You know, I closed out two senior appointments last week in Dubai. So again, it's it's going back to there's some green shoots coming up in in the UAE. These are senior appointments, but they're they're kind of a sort of associate director, senior design manager roles where that architect can do A to Z of a project. They'll be running multiple projects. They'll be involved in a design. They'll go to the client. They'll liaise with the client. They will be uh, overseeing architects in-house, you know, small team. They'll be developing them, but they'll be taking that, uh, that project through the scope of works they've been given. 
Um, you know, some firms here are just very focused on design. Some firms here are executive architects where they'll maybe take a signature architects like a Foster's or a Zaha's. They'll take their design and then they'll execute the rest of it into seeing that asset, the tangible asset being built. So I think in terms of what I'm looking for, I'm looking for architects that are probably more seasoned rather than junior architects. Uh, at the moment, they need to pretty much have A to Z of experience. If it's for Saudi, I'm looking for client side experience or working for an operator that understands, you know, the brand's um, standards from whether it's be working from a Four Seasons or a Marriott or whatever, but they understand how a hotel works and how you connect the parts of the lobbies to, you know, the restaurants right. to, you know, the rooms. And you only get that through years of experience. Um, and again, I think, yeah, the asset class is delivering multiple assets. If we're looking for a project where it's a hotel project, you've got to have delivered hotels. Even though architects are, you know, you guys can work on what kind of like Swiss, Swiss army knives. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and sometimes I do, you know, I try and push back the clients to say, look, at the end of the day, they're architects. It's not much difference between a hotel and, you know, a high rise. But I think for them, it's probably their client that says, well, I need someone that has delivered hotels and they won't look at anybody else that has not done a hotel. And I'm, and I'm sure it would get a lot more specific as well. Cause I've, I mean, I've heard of briefs where, where clients have not only wanted architects, for example, that have delivered hotels, but I've wanted architects who have worked with XYZ operator who have delivered XYZ brand yep. and so on. So I can see how it can get even a lot more specific than yeah, that. Yeah, because then I'm looking at a brief that says, right, I need an architect that's worked on hotels, that's either ideally worked for a real estate developer that's developed hotels or has worked for an operator or currently working for an operator. So, right. you know, you're you're looking at a very hard brief there. And you've got to remember that the people that we're probably approaching have maybe not been affected by COVID. They're not out of work. They're still in work and they're quite happy where they are. And one, they might not be interested in coming to the Middle East or two, they're already in the Middle East, but they're in a very good job. So they're not interested in, in going. And that I think as well as COVID, I think there is worry about people changing jobs because it's like, well, what if this project goes on hold? I'm very stable where I am. As much as it's a great opportunity, you know, I don't want to run the risk of uh, moving jobs at the, you know, at, at this moment in time and then, you know, being last in, first out. Right. And then you're out of work in COVID and you know how difficult it can be. So, you know, it's it's challenging when you're putting all those factors together. But I think to sort of a positive spin on it, I, I mentioned it, we're seeing signs of UAE green shoots over the last couple of months. And I think with Dubai being sort of that design hub, I think that's really important. You know, I don't want to make this so Saudi focused. Even on the Saudi projects, I think a lot will still be delivered from Dubai. So right. we're going to see probably a lot more demand from architects, from architectural and engineering consultants that are based here that will be working on those projects. So I do think after E, a lot more of the, you know, they'll get a lot of these project awards. So I don't think we're going to have a slow summer. Notoriously in this region, you know, probably from June to definitely September, it's very quiet, you know, because of the heat, a lot right. of the people do disappear from this region. They right. tend to go home, schools are out, people, you know, families go back and they take, you know, they, and a lot of those are key decision makers. So right. a lot of these projects do tend to slow down. Right. I don't think this can happen with COVID and with the scale of the work that's going on Saudi that will need to be delivered from here as well. And the project wins that are coming even last week, um, you know, I had a big international uh, consultant reached out to me that they don't usually 
uh, I work with recruitment consultants. And I think that's another thing. I think a lot of candidates think every big international consultant works with uh, uh, an agency recruiter like myself. They don't. Ultimately, they normally COVID, have like their entire in-house team uh, that does uh, it. Absolutely. And they will come to us when they've probably exhausted their market and they can't find anyone, but they're getting pressure from, you know, direct internally. So we need somebody in this project now. Then that's when they'll come out to us. So they've already kind of market mapped that. And then that's when they'll rely on us for our relationships that what we have at Redpath Partners, because it's, a you know, our relationships are globally. It's not just so much in the Middle East. So we can... You know, we can rely on our other offices supporting us and saying, you know, we've got candidates in Sydney that want to come over to, to the Middle East. So I think, you know, I think that's, that's really important that I think a lot of candidates have to understand that, that, you know, we don't work with everybody and we're also very selective of who we work with and, you know, because I think that's important. We don't work with everybody and we can't work with everybody. If we work with everybody, where are we going to find our candidates? Because we can't take so, you know, we have to choose very wisely, but again, going back to that, you know, big international firm approaching me last week because they're, they're a project's kicking off, you know, uh, in May. And that's right. great. That's great for us to hear that projects are going to be starting this summer rather than maybe waiting until Q3 or something. Q3. Like yeah. And then, you know, that's a long summer and people that are out of work now, um, are thinking, wow, okay, I'm going to now have another three, four, five, six months, and they're probably looking at their finances and they're probably like, right, I'm probably going to have to go home. So I think there's definitely positivity there in the market. I so, think so, yeah. I think that the way, um, I mean, this this might just be me as a designer, but it, it, it seems like Saudi is kind of like Dubai when the whole boom happened. It, uh, I mean, now having said that, uh, I know that Dubai as a city received a lot of, uh, let's just say, criticism for the way that they developed and the pace that they developed at. But as a designer, when I see the stuff in Saudi, it seems a lot more mature, a lot more thought through, mm -hmm. kind of maybe saw where, you know, their neighbors fell short and decided this is what we, you know, we, we want to step up and, you know, deliver. Is that just something which, you know, me as a designer that I see, or do you see that as well? Uh, I, I see that as well. I think when you look at Dubai, Dubai has been developed 20, 25 years. Um, and I think there's a difference if you also look at Dubai compared to Abu Dhabi. See, like Dubai is like, <laughs> it's like the sort of, you know, Abu Dhabi is the bigger brother. Right. Whereas Abu Dhabi is very, very slow in its development, you know, and, and that's probably due to it being the capital. But you look at their projects. They've got some amazing projects that have been developed in Abu Dhabi, but they take time. You know, look at the, the airport, midfield terminal. It's been going on exactly. for years, yeah. but it's, it's, you know, beautiful project. And, you know, they hire the best designers and they want to make it the best. And there, there's other examples in, in Abu Dhabi. I think Dubai slightly different is, you know, in the real estate market here, you kind of get a plot of land and you can kind of develop what you want on it. There, there doesn't seem to be an awful amount of sort of regulations and they're probably looking at finances. Do they have the capital there to build? And that's what we see around Dubai. Sometimes there are a lot of projects that start started and stopped. And some of these, you know, are in key areas of Dubai, you know, the Palm, you know, when you go right. to Palm Dubai Pearl, you know, which is, you know, that's iconic, the Palm. Everyone associates Dubai with the Palm. And then you come on and you see this structure that's been there for years, just derelict. And and I think that's probably one of the biggest things is, is with Dubai, which is, right, we're just going to keep building and building and building and people are going to come. And it was that mindset. Um, and as much as, you know, I think, 
Dubai has done a, a, a good job. I think probably looking at Saudi, they're, they're looking at it and they're thinking, well, what they've done for a city, we're kind of rolling out across the kingdom. And, yeah, and it's, yeah. I think it's very different. You know, they're, they're, we're talking large scale master planning projects right now. So I'd say there's, there's definitely similarities. I think with Saudi, you've got the uh, Vision 2030. Um, so, you know, I think there's a couple of significant differences here. I think sort of your Saudi is the nation building on a scale not seen before, probably outside of China. And the difference with the UAE is that you're covering sort of, you know, you're covering a huge geography of 34 million people in Saudi Arabia. Whereas I alluded to earlier on, the population in the UAE in total is I think 9 million, but probably 10% of that is, is Emiratis. So, you know, for their economy, they, it doesn't have to be quite as thriving as it does in Saudi Arabia because, you know, Vision 2030, when you, when you look at what they're trying to do there, and I'm not sure how familiar your listeners are, but, you know, it's the wholesale cultural, social, and economic reforms that are currently underway in the kingdom, which is led by uh, Vision 2030. But the program is creating some exciting opportunities for professionals within the design and development space. So I think, you know, Vision 2030 is built on three pillars, those being a vibrant society, thriving economy, uh, and an ambitious nation. And, you know, with a population of 30, I think it's 34 million going on 35 million, you know, that is huge. And we know that, you know, Saudi very much rely on oil as does the Middle East. But obviously what Dubai done is they diversify from oil and now they're, you know, Dubai is known as a tourist destination. That's kind of what the kingdom's doing. And, you know, that's why you're going to be very familiar with, you know, those giga projects, Red Sea Development, Amala, you know, Neil, you know, you take some of those projects, these are sizes of cities. These are, you know, these are huge projects which uh, just haven't been seen before. So I think the difference is they have to diversify their economy. And that's why the sovereign wealth fund was set up, you know, several years ago. You do that to diversify your economy and they're doing it to, you know, move away from their uh, reliance on oil and they're opening up the kingdom now. So before COVID, you know, they were doing tourist visas. You know, the kingdom's relatively untouched and it's a beautiful country. I don't know if you've ever been, but, you know, I've gone and, you know, if you go up north, you've got the Red Sea and, you know, it's just untouched. You know, the coral reefs and you've got all the marine wildlife. You've got these little islands that are very similar to like the Maldives, but they're untouched and that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to open up the kingdom for, you know, tourists to go there, see that, and they'll bring in, you know, it will bring in money to the, to the economy outside of, of oil. You look at some of the cultural projects that are going on. There's some amazing projects. There's lots of UNESCO World Heritage sites there. Um, so it's not just hospitality. It's not just retail focus, which I think was predominantly Dubai. There's a lot more going on in the kingdom. Right. Um, so I think on, on that side, it's why it's, you know, why it's exciting. But if, you know, if I go back to, so the population of 35 million people, I think 70% are under the age of 30. You know, and they're going to need stuff to do. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's it. They, you know, it's only over the last year or so, they've started getting cinemas. Right. You know, uh, and you had, you know, you, you, you sort of, you, you had the segregation of, you know, where male and females eat separately, you know, so they're one of the biggest social media users, um, you know, on Twitter and on Facebook. So they're seeing what's going on in the, the bigger wide world. And they're saying, well, hang on a minute. We want that. Why can't we have that? That's why so many sort of travel, Saudis travel to Dubai pre-COVID and, 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 and elsewhere. So I think, you know, it's, 
you know, they want that. But I also think as well, um, you know, a lot of these projects are focusing more on sustainability, urban regeneration, which is where Dubai recently announced, you know, the 2040 project where right. it's going to try and connect the city. And I think that's where Dubai's missed out. I think that's what a lot of these projects in the kingdom are focused on now, which is great. They're doing it at the, ver the very early stages. You know, I've worked on numerous sustainability roles, smart cities roles. Wow. And that's exciting, you know, not just architecture. These are design roles, but they're incorporating smart cities at a very early stage in in in, uh, in the master plan. And they're not saying, right, we're going to start building and then we'll think about it. It's actually, no, we're going to think about it up front. Uh, and that's how it's going to be successful. So, so I think, you know, a lot of the Saudis want change. Uh, I also think taking it to, you know, sort of if we're bringing it back to architecture, the difference with the population is a lot of the Saudi nationals work. And there's a lot of really, really talented Saudi national designers, interior designers. And I've worked on numerous appointments of, of uh, working with these guys. And that's probably something that I don't encounter in the UAE. I, you know, it's not very often I work with Emirati designers. There's a couple of Emirati practices and that I've, I've dealt with. But in terms of me finding Emirati architects, you're right. looking for a needle in a haystack there. Right. Whereas in Saudi, you know, a lot of the architects, you know, they will get their bachelor's in architecture in the kingdom. And then they'll go off to the UK. They'll go off to the US. They'll get their masters. They'll get educated there. They become a little bit more westernized and then they'll come back and then they'll start low. You know, they'll start taking their internships. They'll start as a graduate architect and then they work their way up. And I think that's what's really good is a lot of the Saudi nationals, they really are driving change and they want to be a part of these projects. And I think what my job is as a, as a recruiter is, is to hire the best talent we can. And if it's expats from the Middle East region and further afield that come in, yeah. they've got the expertise of delivering these projects, but they will show the Saudi nationals of how you deliver these. They will learn from them. And then the Saudi nationals in the next maybe five, 10 years, they'll be at that level and they can then teach the younger people. So you start right. not having to rely so much on expats. And then because they, they don't need to because of the scale of their population. So, I, you know, I think a lot of... A lot of what's going on with, uh, you know, Vision 2030 is actually improving, uh, well, creating jobs for the Saudi nationals and in actually improving their quality of life. Right. Whereas I think when you look at the UAE and the Emiratis, a lot of them are quite wealthy and they come from that kind of background where a lot of them don't need to work. And if they do work, they tend to be in quite high paid government jobs. You tend not to find Emiratis maybe working for architectural practices. So, you know, I think you're, you're completely changing the whole structure of the kingdom, but I think we can't get away from it. It's, it's creating jobs and it's creating a, a sort of that quality of, of life. Um, and again, you know, Saudi, I think is, I mentioned it early on, I think it's the, it's the true probably last hotspot globally that's relatively untouched. So the next 10 years, if not longer, you know, if we say 10 years in line with 2030, um, but in all honesty, this is gonna, gonna be going on for, for a lot longer in terms of development of the kingdom. You know, they're the powerhouse of the, of the Middle East. So, you know, it's, a, it's about attracting global talent to deliver those projects and that talent then passing down that knowledge to, to the Saudi nationals. Right. Okay. So. I guess by now, if you haven't figured it out, uh, as a designer, definitely consider Saudi. <laughs> it, it definitely seems to be the place to be. As we sort of wind down this episode, mm. my sort of final question to you would be in a space where a lot of people don't necessarily know about. It's kind of this elusive white unicorn, which we know is there, but no one really knows how it works. And I'm talking about, of course, recruitment, but specifically sort of the C-level suite. 
um, sort of the you know leadership roles, not not necessarily designers. I know you touched upon it earlier mm. when we when when we were talking about sort of these client led profiles, but within firms, mm. um, like you said, transitioning from a designer into that sort of leadership role, mm. you have to wear you know many hats and so on. So I'm trying to maybe for our listeners who are tuned in. If they are looking to move into such a role, what would be the kind of things they would need to show you as a recruiter recruiting for those roles? Yeah, it's a good question because I'll be honest, designers tend not to always make strong leaders, you know, because I think it's, it's, it's about putting down the pencil. I think when you're going into a, you know, management role or C-suite role, you know, I can give you an example. So late last year, I actually uh, did an extensive search for a managing director uh, and we finalized the appointment just before um, the end of December. Uh, and, and that was very much, you know, you're given a brief from the client and, you know, again, you're trying to, you're trying to match the brief and the brief was, we want a designer as an MD. Now okay. you've got to remember as an MD, you're, you're not designing anymore. So I think a lot of, you know, a lot of things that you're looking for, if you're going to be sort of going into a C-suite role is it's more about putting down the pen. Okay. You're not designing you. That's why you have a design team below you. You'll have a design director that will then take care of maybe 10 people or, or the whole design team. You don't need to get involved in that. You might have a look at it and say, yeah, that looks great. Cause you're going to then present it to the client. Um, so you need to understand the project, but I think it's, it's more being able to, I think, Vision planning for the business. You've got to understand where you're going to position the business, what market you're looking to target. So I think that goes back to the strategy. You've got to have a really defined strategy for the business of where you want to take it. I think there's a big element of business development in management, which a lot of people don't like doing. Uh, I think especially designers. Right. Um, you know, I think they can find it quite tough um, doing business development, and especially right. if you're, uh, you know, you're a if you're an MD or if you're a CEO that's moving away from design, a lot of the decisions fall on your shoulder, your shoulders. So I think it's about you've got to be strong commercially. Uh, you've got to understand P and Ls because ultimately you're responsible for that business, that business unit. So it might be a global company you're working for, but if you're running a Dubai office, you're responsible for that P&L and you're responsible for which projects you go after. And I think one of the biggest challenges we find in this region is if, uh, let's say, an international consultant is working with a real estate developer, you know, real estate developers can be tough here. They can be really, really tough. And they're not nice to consultants. Um, Don't we know? Yeah. <laughs> and I think... You know, a lot of it is when you've done your job and you've done what you've been asked to do to the brief and you've done everything and you're not getting paid, it's about chasing invoices, you know, and if you're not getting paid, it's how do you pay your staff? Right. And that's, I think, the biggest issue that we encounter a lot when I speak to candidates is they might not have been paid for two, three months and they're still continuing to work. They really like who they're working for, but, you know, it's like... Steve, I can't afford to keep continuing if I'm not getting paid. So I do need to maybe start looking for something else. So I think, you know, as a, a management level, you have to be very careful of who you're and, and selective of what projects you go after. I think that's really important right. um, because you need to make sure you get paid. And, it, you know, they tend to, you know, the clients tend to hold a lot 
you know, the, the, a lot of the cards. Um, so you want to make sure that you've got that trust with them and you are going to get paid in order to run your business. So I think there's the commercial side. I think that's probably the biggest one, uh, managing P&Ls. Vision planning, so, you know, the so strategy me, of the business and building and managing teams. That's really important. I think you've got to be able to be the leader, you know, and people believing you. Right. So maybe let me just ask the very obvious question mm. again for designers. Typically, we show skills, experience via a portfolio. Mm -hmm. So let me ask the very ignorant question. <laughs> How does a manager slash leader slash MD show that do they also sort of need to come with the portfolio or uh, is it more literal yeah I, I, at that stage i don't think you need a portfolio because you've, you've moved away from design and if they're going to put a portfolio together it's probably going to be projects uh, of photos of something that's built which the team put together essentially so you know because if you're going into that you, you've probably been moved away from that from a number of years so you know i won't be looking for a portfolio to, let's say, if it's a C-suite role for an MD, I, you know, I, I don't need a portfolio. Funny enough, I did get a request for a portfolio in the MD search. I did because they wanted a designer, but I knew they didn't want a designer that's going to sit there designing, but they wanted someone that understands the design process. And I understand that. I, I, I completely get it. But, you know, we're looking probably for that individual that has maybe run a practice then for probably four or five years. Right. Um, has worked on some really cool projects and you can put that in a portfolio, but you're not going to say, oh, Steve, I, I was the one that did the renderings and I did the sketch for this. No, you just, you don't. That's why you've got your junior architects or your interior designers or your design director. That's what they do. You're just managing them essentially. And you're, you're pulling them in. You're all trying to work at a common goal and you're pulling them in that direction. Right. That's what you're doing at a management level. It's, you've got to understand design. So I can see why, you know, a lot of these companies, when you look at individuals that are running these businesses, they're, they're designers, they're architects, they're interior designers. Um, but I think they're also maybe going off, they're maybe doing MBAs. They're trying to understand more the commercial side of the business. So to be honest, you don't need portfolios to be more at a management level, uh, okay. but you have to understand projects from A to Z. But the most important thing is, is, is actually running a business. And maybe not if you're at an MD, even if it's just a, if it's just a, a, a management level, again, you're more design managing, project managing, um, and making sure that the team are on board. They understand what the brief is and you're bringing them together because ultimately you need to deliver what the client wants. Right. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. I think, yeah, you'll have to give me a minute because I'm still sort of processing everything at the moment. But I think this was a brilliant episode. I think the final question would then sort of be, again, a very obvious one. I'm sorry for the, <laughs> for the very obvious questions. But I guess the final last question would be, obviously, there are a lot of candidates in the market at the moment. There are a lot of people who are looking to get back into the industry. Like you said, you may get, you know, hundreds of, you know, applications mm -hmm. which aren't necessarily fitting the you know profile and so on so just for the candidates listening in mm -hmm. is there a sort of top five or top 10 sort of just quick fixes yep. which maybe everyone can do to their profile yep. right now you know absolutely. i mean i mean like the genetic stuff which you probably yep. do see yeah absolutely i think probably the easiest sort of quick fix that you know i will come across is sort of a two-line explanation on the company you're working for um, you know, whether that means sort of the number of staff, you know, the key activities or the turnover, you know, if it's firms outside of the region, it would, you know, that aren't quite well known, you know, put a sort of a 
a description in there. I think what a lot of individuals do here is on their CV, they get a job and then they put their job description in their CV and say, this is my duties. So this is what I do. That's, that's not what we're looking for as, as recruiters. And again, as a recruiter, I tend to skim read. I don't look through a whole CV. I look at keywords. So I'll look at the employer. I'll look at the dates that they've been with that employer. Um, and I'll kind of look at the level that they're at and, and the projects that they've worked on. So I think, you know, I think it's really important to explain your job in maybe one or two lines. And it's what you did. It's not what we did. And, and this is my job description. It's like, this is what I delivered on this project. And I think, you know, it's important that it's sort of in, if we're talking architecture and design, obviously you work on projects. I think it's really important as go into as much detail as possible. So value of that project, the size of the project, the date, is it completed? You know, a lot of projects that architects work on, especially in, this middle, in the Middle East, is you start a project and it goes on hold. So you might have only done the concept on that. Um, but I think you have to say the stage you took that to, because ultimately as an architect, I think, you know, your ultimate goal is to work on a project and see it built. You want to drive by and say, well, I worked on that project from A to Z, you know, because that's, that's what you're passionate about. So I think definitely kind of put all of the stages that you were involved in, whether it's the design development, whether it's concepts up to tender stage, whether it was post contract and going onto site, uh, all the way through to delivery, you have to make that really clear. Cause you've got to remember that try and think that the person reading your CV doesn't, just doesn't not, understand. Yeah. So you're trying to give them as much information, but without being too wordy, you want to try and make it, like I said, one or two paragraphs, but give them as much as you can. Because like I said, I skim read. If I read every CV, you know, I, that comes to me from, you know, from start to finish, I'll, I'll be there all day. So I think, you know, there's things that I look for. So I think it's that. I think also, um, you know, I think it's really important that your LinkedIn profile matches your CV. That's really important. You'll be surprised how many clients or prospective uh, employers will actually go on your LinkedIn and check that the dates match. And if the dates don't match, it's a red flag. So make sure your dates uh, and your titles match what you're putting on your CV. Um, I also think it's important that you know you'll have a professional headshot. In the Middle East, they like to have photos. You know, in the UK, we don't put photos and we don't put a lot of other stuff just because it's just probably not politically correct. But here, you know, uh, employers want a lot of information on there, a professional headshot, not a selfie, uh, <laughs> not, 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 you know, not someone where, you know, you're drinking a beer, you know, something like that. You know, you, it has to be a professional headshot. It's really important both on your LinkedIn and on your CV. Right. Um, because, you know, that's the, one of the first things that the, the employer will see. Um, and if we're looking at architecture and design, your portfolio, I think it's, I think it's really important to have an electronic portfolio. Yes. When you go to interviews, have a, have a printout, you know, a nice booklet. I think it's great because you can sit there and it's, it's a talking point. Um, but nowadays with more, uh, interviews taking place on Zoom, what we're experiencing is our clients will say, right, we want to interview this person. Um, can they prepare a portfolio? I don't want it any longer than 10 pages. And can they talk through it for 20, 30 minutes? So, you know, I come across some portfolios and they put absolutely everything in their portfolio. It could be a hundred pages. It's just too much. And of course, I understand you want to showcase your, your skill set. You need to pick out the projects which you had probably the most significance, the most con contribution to. Um, and it's what you did. I think a lot of people will pick projects 
that they probably, it's a great project, but they did actually, when they say, okay, well, what did you do on this project? Oh, well, I, I just did this. So this. Okay, so you didn't really work too much. No, I only had a very small part. Why is that in your portfolio? You want to put, you know, in your portfolio projects that you've probably had the most significant contribution to. That's really, really important. Um, and as well as in a portfolio, what a lot of people do is they love to put these beautiful images, CGI images all the way through. I think as a portfolio, it needs to be, you know, have renderings on there, have your sketches, have your freehand sketches and say, this is the thought process. So this is the idea that I come up with as a concept from the, the, uh, from the concept. And then I've taken it in and then with design development and here is, you know, the CGI. And then hopefully you'll maybe have a photo of that project being completed. So it, right. it's that, it's that A to Z cradle to grave of that project. If you can not just CGI images and, and you'll be amazed how many clients actually come back to me and say, yeah, the portfolio is nice, but it, you know, I've seen it all before. It's just CGI, you know, I want more. So I think, you know, you need to stand out and it's a very competitive market. So I think you need to have a portfolio, but keep it short, keep it sweet. You know, 10 pages is more than enough, uh, but make sure the most important thing is that when the client grills you on that, you can speak very confident, confidently about those projects that you delivered or you took the lead on. It's not like, oh, my team done this and I only done this part. So right. that's what, some of the quick fixes, probably they're long fixes, but you know, <laughs> um, stuff that candidates, if they've got time, if they're on the market at the moment, they should be looking at uh, incorporating some of those, uh, and it will stand you a good, good, uh, a good chance of you know standing out in uh, your competition and and hopefully securing you uh, a role. Awesome, awesome, uh, definitely food for thought. I'm pretty sure there are a lot of listeners who are probably rushing to open their laptops at the moment to kind of check exactly that <laughs> so thank you so much for sharing not just this but everything in the entire episode i think it was very insightful especially for people who are looking to enter back into the industry definitely saudi like you said needs to be on the table if you are looking for something like that i normally ask our guests this question but i feel like this may be a bit of a problem for you but if candidates want to reach out to you, mm. I mean, the obvious would be, you know, for a role, but even if it were for something else, what would be the best way for them to reach out to you? Uh, probably on LinkedIn would be the best way. And and look, I think I didn't go too much into it earlier on, but I think, you know, as a consultant, it's not just for a role. You know, I think in the, in the past 12 months, we've actually probably become, you know, more therapists as well, because a lot of people have lost their jobs and, you know, they sometimes they just want to have a, have a talk uh, and they want to hear that there's some positivity. So I think, you know, my role is, is yes, ultimately we're trying to fill a role from a client, but also it's a lot more than that. I think it's having that human touch, just keeping open that, that dialogue, that communication, building that trust. Um, you know, cause a lot of my candidates become clients, clients become candidates and they want to, they want to know that there's someone at the end of the line, if they want to have a vent, that there's someone there. And I'm not a technical person, I'm not an architect, don't come from an architectural background. I come from a recruitment HR background but I understand the industry and I know how challenging it is at the moment. So people want to, you know, if they need any advice, I'm, you know, my door's open depending on my, you know, as I did say, and my availability with, you know, demanding clients. But, you know, I, I think we have to remember it's, it's not just about filling jobs. I think there's a lot more to, to my job. So if, you know, people want to reach out, if they're not sure about something on their CV or they want to speak, learn more about Saudi, then absolutely. I'm more than willing to have a conversation with them. If they're in Dubai, I'm happy to grab a coffee. 
right. gets me out of the office. Right. Um, so yeah, look, um, uh, LinkedIn, um, and on my LinkedIn is my email address. Okay. Um, email is much more viable for me, um, than LinkedIn because I do get so inundated and I do miss messages, but LinkedIn, um, email, and, and Instagram, our Red Path account's got some really good stuff on there okay. um, with, with initiatives and events that we're doing as well. So, um, yeah, they're probably the best best ways of reaching out. All right. We'll have them all um, linked down in the show notes. So if any of you want to check out Red Path, you know, connect with Steve, have any questions, follow them, do all that good stuff. We'll have everything linked below. And on that note, Steve, I wanted to thank you on behalf of the entire AFORM team, most of who are not here at the moment, but we'll talk about that later, but kind of just believing in the little vision that we have with this podcast, kind of to get the design community together to kind of talk about the stuff, which we don't always talk about. Mm. I think you've addressed some very good points and this definitely will not be the last. We'll for sure have you on at some point in the future. I appreciate that. I think it's a great initiative and I think that's, you know, Dubai is a very small market in architecture and design. You know, I think it's one thing we try and do is we, we put some networking events on and, but I think, you know, sometimes it can be a little closed off. So I think something like this going out um, and just educating people, I think it's a wonderful idea. So I, I appreciate you uh, inviting me on and, and hopefully it's been insightful. It has, it has for sure, for sure. hundred percent it has. Good. So on that note, again, thank you very much. And for everyone listening in, we will see you guys next week. Fellow A-formers, thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for being part of our journey and thank you for the immense support we've been receiving for our episodes. It has and continues to be a very bumpy road, but we wouldn't want it any other way. If you enjoyed this episode and it brought you value, please share this episode with anyone who may benefit from it. But of course, if you loved the episode, follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn, send us a little DM, And we may just send you a secret link to a secret episode which we've been working on. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. See you next time. Keep sketching.